Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Shall we stand as I read the first 12 verses? Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge up around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at the vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant at that Him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to teach them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you never even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him. But feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Father, again, bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this use of the vineyard, uh, living in that uh, agrarian culture at the time, uh, very common uh, social economic arrangement that was made uh, by the people that controlled their properties. Uh, So, uh, as always, the parable fits perfectly into this situation. These wealthy landowners would uh, make an agreement uh, with uh, the tenant farmers uh, for a set price, cultivate the land, gather the harvest, pay us our share, and you'll keep what remains. And so this was the contract uh, that was um, a designated amount, obviously, uh, a certain amount to the owner, a certain amount to the tenants. It's sort of like, well, it's no different than today in our culture. We have wealthy landowners. They have thousands of acres, but they rent it out to the fellows who have the equipment to, to do the farming. And, of course, you would wait until the harvest time came uh, then you would collect uh, and make good on the agreement with one another. And so the landowners uh, would usually delegate this uh, to others uh, under their employment. Uh, and and that, in reality, that would sort of give the tenants a little bit of um, boldness, I guess, a, l- a little advantage in renegotiations if things didn't quite go as planned. Um, you know, it was the employee's job to who would gather uh, the fruits and the payment to give to the owner um, 
to get the amount that was agreed upon. To come back with less uh, would cost them their jobs. And so there's a, these negotiations and renegotiations at the end um, uh, could get quite intense because if they had a, a poor crop, you know, poor weather, blight, or other conditions that uh, brought about a less than favorable uh, harvest, uh, you know, the tenants still had their overhead ex- costs. They still had workers to pay and, and bills to pay and ends to make meet, you know, meet ends and all. And um, so that you can see this was really, could be easily set up on a natural level for, for problems. And so Jesus uses this analogy uh, to really illustrate the attitude of the tenants. It's not focused on the vineyard, but the tenants, those who are given uh, a delegated authority, not an intrinsic authority, but a delegated authority to watch over and to give to the landowner what rightfully belonged to him and not to keep them from receiving what was due them as well. So this overreaching uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, using the religious system that it had become, using the law, the relationship that the nation was to have with God as a means to control and to exploit the people. It overreached their authority and, and Jesus was now revealing their hypocrisy through this parable. They didn't like it. They didn't. Nobody likes to have their hypocrisy, you know, their faults, their failures exposed to others, especially if they're in positions of leadership. And um, it's really set them off. They're ready to grab him. Oh, we can just see the gnashing of teeth <laughs> taking place. Remember, this is. You know, and Jesus is just bringing it. And obviously, you, you kind of wonder if he's not doing it uh, to some degree to provoke them uh, to, to, to do what they want to do in their hearts because it was foreordained that he would die on a cross. So to get them into that mindset to carry out their evil deed, uh, and this is what happens. It's just a natural result of truth coming forth and truth being resisted. You know, you can come to church regularly, you can read your Bible, but you can also read it and be resisting what God is trying to tell you. That's not a good place to be. Uh, the most important thing we do is just surrender. Just yield. Just just let the truth have its perfect work in our hearts. Uh, you kind of get used to it after a while, don't you? <laughs> you know, you've walked with the Lord and you realize, you know, to do it otherwise is just wasting time and it's and it's just a continuation of pain in your life. And these guys had lost their reputations as priests and they were not going to relinquish their power uh, that they had gained through that. We may have lost our reputations, but hey, we're still in control, so get over it, people. You know, this is sort of a, an attitude. They were jealous of Jesus. He had the respect. He demonstrated the authority. Uh, in front of them, and the people knew and understood the hypocrisy of the establishment, and uh, therefore that lack of respect brought jealousy within their hearts. You know, it's kind of funny how this plays out with human nature. There's nothing new under the sun. We sort of uh, see this playing out. Uh, Actually, we have a perfect example of this 
uh, in our present day. We have a phony president who desires to have respect, but he has none. The poor dotard plagiarizes speeches from those who are respected. And then he becomes angry when the people he's speaking to uh, do not respond in the same manner that they responded to the people who uttered the words in the first place. So sad. Such a disgrace. And that's really what we see at this time during this Passover week. Jesus has two days left. This is Tuesday. They're going to find a way anyway to take him out. They're not going to let him leave this city. Their disgrace and their representation of God to the nation uh, would continue only a short time. And so this sentence is essentially uh, the Lord's announcement that they're going to be judged. If you look at chapter 13, verse 2, the disciples make a, a comment there about the temple. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. He uttered that a little bit later to the apostles. This parable ties in with that. They're going to be judged. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But when the time comes, judgment will be performed. It will be swift and it will be thorough. And nobody will walk away. Nobody escaped that was guilty of their crimes in that first century. Now, this parable, if you're familiar with it, and if you read uh, any at all, done any kind of study, you know that it's uh, very similar to Isaiah chapter 5. And you can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord likens Israel to a vineyard. So no doubt when Jesus was speaking this parable to them, those who who took the time to read the scriptures because Jesus sort of had condemned them for their ignorance. You do err not knowing the scriptures. You know, he, he made that statement a few times uh, with them. Uh, but those who were familiar with the scriptures would have known uh, and been familiar with this utterance of Isaiah in chapter 5. It's actually a, a probably a lament uh, that was uh, this portion of scripture there because of the disappointment God was disappointed with all that he had done and all that he would provided as we'll read in this lament here now let me sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill he dug it up and cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes... Did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. I'll break down its wall, 
and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that they rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So as we read through this, we're easily, it's easy for us to see the heart of God towards Israel, towards his people. Israel in that day, they did suffer the judgment. The Chaldeans came in, Babylon came in, and leveled the place. And it was desolate for 70 years. Thorns and briars grew up until the edict from Cyrus was given and they were allowed to come back and restore and create the second temple. But God performed his justice. God performed his righteousness because the men who had been ordained by God to do that failed to do so. This is the pattern of God. He gives men, nations, people, leaders time to repent, time to do justice, time to do what's right. And when they fail to do so in accordance to his timetable, and when his patience runs out, he judges. And such will happen to our country. Peter tells us that the judgment actually begins in the house of God. And we see even today that the judgment that's coming upon our nation is solid form of God, as we mentioned last week, giving us up and giving us over to our sin is now well developed within our culture. We see it have crept into the church and we see the professing Christians that attend church. There's a, there's a dividing, there's a separation that's taking place. Well, you know, I don't really have to go to church because, you know, hey, I just, it's up to me, you know, it's, it's about me when I decide that I need to go. True believers understand they have a responsibility to minister unto the Lord. You know, I've, I've asked, been asked uh, over the years, you know, why do you do a midweek service? Nobody really comes. There's not very many people that show up. It was a very easy answer for me because it's my opportunity to once again Minister unto the Lord. We are a kingdom of priests. We are called. We are a chosen people. I worship the Lord because I love the Lord. And I love the Lord for all the things that he's done for me. The least I can do is give him praise. And on top of that, there is a selfish motive. I receive so much more from the Lord than I ever give to him. There's a transformation that takes place in our hearts and in our lives as we are in the presence of God. You can't get that anywhere else. You can only get that when two or three are gathered in his name and there's true, a true exchange of, of worship in spirit and in truth. And so we see this heart of God here. As it says, he planted Israel. He planted them there in the promised land. He desired that they enjoy life, to have an abundant life. He wanted fruit from their lives. Loyal love, really, the fruit of praise and glory to his name. He planted them, and where he planted, planted them was perfect. 
The soil of their surroundings was sufficient for growth, and such is true for the church today. Wherever we as Christians have been planted, that soil in which we live in and around is sufficient for growth. Well, it's such a dry area where God's called me to serve. Yeah? But that's okay. It's sufficient. It's adequate. We can grow there. God put you there. God has placed me here. God has put us where we are. And it's sufficient. We can grow because His grace is always sufficient. Notice there what it says, that He dug up and cleared out the stones. He's removed all the obstacles. He's made it sufficient for the work that needs to be done. He's done what you don't have to do and really could not do in preparing the work that He has ordained for you to perform. He planted the choicest vine. Some of you may feel like you've been sort of shortchanged by God. You're, you're not as smart as you wish you were. You're not as spiritual as you wish you were. There always seems to be something lacking that sort of gives you and I an excuse not to serve the Lord or not to do this or that. We might be despised by the world, but we are precious in the eyes of God. You know... We say, you know, what's the love? Well, God sees things differently than you know. He sees you as a work of art. And not only that, He sees you perfected. He sees you and I in a glorified state, the finished work. He knows what we're going to be. Wouldn't you look least like to have a glimpse of that, maybe? <laughs> to give you to help you make it down the road a little bit further? Sometimes we look within and it's just a bottomless pit. God help us, you know. What a train wreck I am today, you know. <laughs> but the church is God's special work. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the base, the foolish things of the world so that man may not boast. And that's just the way it is. Notice here it says that he constructed wine presses. Now the wine press is where they would bring the harvest and then they would you know, be able to stand on it with their bare feet after they washed them. And then, for some of you people who are wondering, <laughs> and they would crush the grapes and the juice would go to, the, to, the, uh, to a funnel type part of the uh, hewn rock really and it, into a, then into a container. And thus the juice would be gathered uh, from the harvest. You know, when you think about the crushing that takes place, the, the pressures of life that we face, God orchestrates all of that. But what He is after in that crushing is what is so precious to God. As the wine and the juice that comes forth is precious to the, to the vineyard people, this wine of faith that comes through out of us when we are put in high-pressure situations of life, our true, the truth of who we are and what is in the inside comes out. And when we trust God and we express love in the midst of that pain and that pressure, that, is so, that so blesses the Lord. And it actually is a ref shows us that we are truly His. And that's important. Also, it says that He, built, he hedged about, He built a shelter. Think about uh, how God has 
stored up great things for our lives and how he protects us and delivers uh, uh, the promise of these blessings to us. It's just all, all things taken into consideration by our God. So when we look at this parable and both of them together is a good idea. Good that you would read both of these together. There's five expressions here of God's grace. One, he set, as we've mentioned in repetition here, he set a hedge. Two, he dug a wine press. Three, he built a tower. Four, he leased the vineyard out. And five, he sent his servants. The idea of the hedge, once again, is to protect. It's, they want, you need to protect it because there's thieves. There's people who want to steal. There are people who don't want to work for a living. Now, most of us are, understand this. There's various neighborhoods around that are worse than others. There's drug addicts who like to steal because they're too lazy to work. If they'd only take the amount of effort they, in stealing and thievery and put that into doing something creative, they'd be pretty well off, I imagine. But God has to protect us. Thank God for good neighbors. I've had the experience of being uh, taken from, and I don't like it any more than you do. I have a story, but I don't have time for the story. I just thank God for his protection. Let's just cover it with that. But these were... These walls, these hedges were stones, uh, unmortared stones that they would normally just stack up around uh, the perimeter uh, to protect against thieves. The Lord hedges us in. He puts his shield of protection. That's why we pray, Lord, as I go out and as I come in, put your shield of protection around about me. That's something you should pray every day for because you have a target on your head. There's an enemy. There's a thief. Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That, and we are in a war. Make no mistake about that. He dug a wine press. Again, uh, the place where they would process the harvested grapes. And so I think to spiritualize this, there's a, uh, a prophetic gift here. You know, you think about the temple services and all the things that are typified in the sacrifice and death of Christ. Um, 30 built a tower uh, again this is a shelter this would also serve as, serve as a storage place and a place of safety so uh, safety the protection as mentioned before uh, that God has provided for us and think about the things that he's stored up for you he's thought about you he's stored up blessings for you he's waiting to give his blessings into your life but some of us are not ready for the blessings because we don't take the time to prepare ourselves to get ready for it. So the, so the fault is not God's. How often God get, gets faulted for things that uh, he's not responsible for. It's there. The blessings are there. They've been bought and paid for. God is waiting to dispense them. But you and I have to get ourselves in a position to receive them. We have not because we ask not. We ask and receive not because we seek to consume it upon our own lust. Our motives aren't right. So thus the pressure cooker. It brings out the things that are impure and, and sanctifies us, sets us apart. 
so that we now become able and more ready. There's certain things you, you impart to your children when they're at a young age. And then there are certain things that you impart to them as they grow and they mature. I'm not giving my five-year-old the keys to the car. I can barely give it to them when they're 16 or 17, right? Or what is it now? 15, you get your, you, you get your permit, right? So thus it is with the Lord. He gives it to us when we're ready for it. We've been prepared to handle what that blessing will be. You know, I think about how God's, on a national level, He built a tower. He put a hedge around about our nation, the Constitution, the laws to allow the fourth leg of the government. Now, you know who that is, right? We have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, right? The fourth leg is we, the people. It's our job. It's our responsibility. They established this hedge to protect. That is the government's number one, number two priority, to serve and to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the role of government. Anything beyond that is, it lends itself to a growing tyranny, which we are now facing. We have been given this to protect us. Sadly, just as the priests were corrupt in Israel, it is so easy for people in authority to become corrupted. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? You know the old adage, it's so true. And what's really sad is that we have, we have been taught and we have grown up to trust people in authority. Policemen, firemen, doctors, surgeons, judges, you know, positions of authority. And yet what we see in our country today is that those many people, not all, but many people in those positions of authority are the ones that, that have, are not trustworthy at all. They have no integrity. They've been blinded through bribery. And they're not there to serve us anymore. They've betrayed our trust. You see, they forget that as he leased out the vineyard to these vine dressers, this authority that's been given is a delegated authority. Only God has the ultimate intrinsic authority. He, he gets his authority from no one else. He's the creator. He's the sovereign Lord. All, other, all authority that is true authority comes from God. As John said, a man can receive nothing except it come from above. And that's the way it is. Well, Jesus actually said that as well. The point of this parable is that God had provided all that was necessary for that vineyard to grow and to produce fruit. And so when we stand before God, when Israel stood before the Lord and he weighed them out, and as God will judge us and weigh us out, we will not be able to say, well, I didn't have. Nobody will be able to say that. We have to learn our motto, right? We do what we can with what we have where God has placed us. That's how we're going to be judged. What are you doing with what God has given you? What are you doing with the gift of life? 
he sent his servants, the prophets, to receive the fruits. You know, they were the ones that were in charge. They're the ones who led in praise, in prayer, in the worship of Yahweh, and such as it is today. It's on us as leaders, as pastors, to to teach and to train and to guide the church so that we fulfill our destiny. You know, there, in that time, the evidence of God's presence was the cloud. It was the pillar by day. It was the cloud of fire by night. You know, it was a pillar of fire, the cloud of fire during the day. They called that the Shekinah. And there were times when the sacrifices would go up and they, in a time, special times when the people were really on fire for the Lord, so to speak, and there was such a unity and a love flowing that his presence would just overwhelm the place. The priests would just like, you know, you can just see them like, whoa, you know, can't even get near the, uh, the Holy of Holies, you know. And it's the same for you and I. If we come with pure hearts, week in and week out, come with into the presence of the Lord with sincerity. He will fill this place. His presence will be overwhelming and transforming. And this isn't, isn't this what we want? This is the kind of fruit that God desires. And so he sent, as the story goes here, he sent the servants, that'd be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others in the Old Testament there to lead and guide. And they were persecuted and many of them martyred. And he condemned, as the Lord condemned those actions there in Isaiah, he's condemned them here uh, in Mark 12. Think of, you know, I want to be in ministry, you know. (laughs) Well, you like getting beat? (laughs) How about stone? (laughs) Want to die? (laughs) That's that potential. You know, think of the Christians that are being persecuted, not just pastors, but those who name the name of Christ. There's a risk here. Well, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, I don't think anybody signs up for that. May God give us grace if we have to endure that. I am very proud of some of the brothers in California that refused to bow to Caesar and fail, you know, cease having church services. Well, you can, you know, we're not wearing masks and we're not going to refrain from singing. We're going to pray and we're going to praise. Goodbye. And Calvary Chapel in St. Clair or Santa Clara, I guess. Might be Santa Barbara, that whole area there. Uh, $2.7 million in fines. Shove it. We're not paying it. (laughs) You know, essentially. Who are these guys? They're demon-possessed leaders. And we don't have to submit to that. Well, yeah, but what about, yeah, what about it? They're the ones that are in trouble, not us. It's better to obey God than man. And I'm just so blessed by the stories this past week at the conference. Just bless me. These Stand up against the tyranny. If we don't stand now, we'll be bowing before them. I'm not bowing. I bend the knee to Jesus Christ, my Lord and my King.
These people are leading the nation to destruction, and we should have nothing to do with it. There are those who have asked, well, you know, should the Christians disobey the government? <laughs> you know, <laughs> fear and intimidation. Well, we're the fourth leg of the government. We have a call, we have a responsibility as citizens to perform that duty. Have you read the Bill of Rights? I'll answer the, you can answer the question by reading the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. Probably take you about an hour to read all three through all those documents. Then ask me if we should disobey the government. Only when it's tyrannical. Only when they're overreaching. But why don't, why do we, it explains why we do what we do actually there in the Bill of Rights. We just put up with it because we don't want to, we don't have trouble. We just want to be left alone and raise our families and work our jobs and do what we want to do. And I do that so long and, and allowing tyranny to take control. You won't have those freedoms. It's incumbent upon us to be involved and pay attention to what's going on. That's our duty. But few will take the time to realize what their responsibility is. And they may suffer for it. We all may suffer for it. It's not individually rebelling. It's we, the people, uniting together and standing strong for what we have been given. We were given a free nation. And we remember this weekend the blood that was shed by those Washington immortals, if you will. These guys that were willing to walk through snow and ice barefooted, bleeding at their feet to provide freedom for you and me. As one person said, I don't think there's many in this present generation that would even cross the Delaware to do anything to retain the freedom that's been given to us. God help us. And just as they rejected Jesus, they reject the truth. They reject what is good and what is right. This rejected stone, again here in verse 10 and 11, is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. The Lord's work is marvelous. People often wonder what it will be like when Jesus comes again. That stone that was rejected, they examined it. They looked it over, just as they looked Jesus over during that last week. As the Passover lamb, they saw that he was without spot and without blemish. They examined this stone, this other analogy that Jesus brings in to focus here. Well, this stone is the rock of ages. Daniel 2.34, this is how it will roll out in the end. You watched, and while a stone was cut without hands, was struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this statue, this image that 
Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream was the world, last world governing empire, iron mixed with clay. This rock coming out of heaven strikes the image, strikes this last world governing empire and crushes it. And you see the effects. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Ha ha ha. Lots of scoffers. Scoff, if you will. It's going to happen. He's coming in power and great glory. And aren't you glad you're on the right side? You need to be on the right side of Jesus coming. Yes, we have made such a mess of things. We need divine in- intervention. If we're going to survive, this world is going to survive it because God got involved. How is this going to roll out and when? I don't know. But at the rate it's escalating now, it, something's got to give. Something's got to change. And will his intervention bring about the second coming? I'd like to hope. I hope so. But it may just be a, a reset. Well, they are talking about this great reset, but a lot of these people that are talking about this great reset are just new agers, thinking that, you know, man's ability to change and to fix things, and to reestablish things, will fix these global problems. I don't think so. Seems to be a pattern that seems to happen throughout history. And we learn the devil's plan, he has templates. He uses them over and over again. We're seeing a replay of what went on in the 30s under the Nazi regime, if you know history at all. The Russians do the same thing. They have, well, fancy words, I guess. In English, it's thesis and antithesis resulting, thesis and antithesis resulting in synthesis. We have this, we have that, and we have a conflict, and then we bring about the outcome that we want. The Russians did this in the 80s, within their own country anyway. They refer to it as glasnost and perestroika, the idea of uh, glasnost, the openness and transparency that's needed in government, their activities, and perestroika, the idea of restructuring. This Gorbachev was the one who orchestrated that. It's communism. Why do they have to constantly restructure and disclose? Because we've seen, if we've learned anything about communism, we've learned that it doesn't work. No nation on this planet that has ever employed communism has ever succeeded, or nor has it ever lasted. It doesn't work. And yet that's what they're shoving down our throat right now. Forced vaccinations are coming, those kinds of things, whether we like it or not. Potentially passports, unless there's an intervention of some sort. We need to be aware of these things. You see, the establishment of Jesus' day hated him. The establishment of our day hate Christians. Christianity and communism cannot coexist. Something will give and must give. We must be people of prayer. 
I know we all just want it to go back to the way it used to be. It's not going to go back to the way it used to be. Find your place. Find the will of God for your life. Do not be caught up in fear. Fear of man brings a snare. Proverbs 29, 25. Do not be afraid. Do not let what is coming divide us. Alienate us. Try to keep us from being together. It's not a good thing. Let's not be fearful in these uncertain days. Let us be bold. Be obedient to the voice of God. Who is the ultimate authority? I want to end with John 15. If you'll turn with me to John 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus used that parable of the vineyard to talk about the tenets, the establishment. He's using another vineyard illustration to speak to the role of those within the kingdom, to believers. This is important that we understand what Jesus is communicating here, that such an illustrative way of communicating kingdom truths. John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. And it shall be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandment and abide in His love. Jesus here is revealing how His Father goes about His work in His vineyard. The first thing that the Father does is He takes away. Now, this is startling to some that, oh, if you sin, then you lose your salvation, you know. Now, hold on. (laughs) It's arrow, that's the word here. It means to remove, which some take it to mean that, but it actually means to rise to a higher position. If you're a gardener and you have a green thumb and you take care of plants, you understand this illustration perfectly in that when there's a storm or high winds or whatnot and the plants are young and tender, 
the wind can blow things over, weight them down. Uh, fruit is on there. It can uh, have an effect on it as well. So what do you do as the gardener? You lift up it up out of the dirt, you brush it off, and you reset it. And this is what our Father does. He resets us, as it were. He takes away. He raises us to a higher position so that we do better. He wants fruit from our lives. Secondly, he prunes. This is catharus, to make clean. And uh, the idea of pruning um, is there might be more fruit. Now, um, I'd hate to be a plant when I'm coming after it to prune it. I mean, knives are sharp. Pruning shears are sharp. And when we just need to understand this, that when the Lord has his pruning snips or his sharp knife, he's gentle. He's lowly in heart. He's good. The, Lord, the knife in the Lord's hand is not to be feared. I have learned to accept from the hand of God the removal of things that are not good for me. I've learned the phrase that often has served me well. Others can, but I cannot. When he takes something out of my life, okay, it's what's best. Now the pain usually ensues, I've noticed, in my own life, my own experience. The pain ensues only if I hold on to what he's trying to remove from my life. If I just let it go, and I just trust God. It may hurt for a bit, but it heals quick, quickly, and I recover much quicker. Jesus, in only one place in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, does he, does he declare something about himself, and it's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through thirty. Come unto me, all you that heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am meek, I am gentle and lowly in heart, humble. Jesus describes himself as being gentle and humble. Who's going to argue with that? Because that's what he is. But he came to what? Reveal the Father. So as we see Jesus, so is the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So there's no need for us to be afraid or to draw back if we sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts to let go of something and allow God to prune us of something. In actuality, what will happen is it will produce more fruit and we'll experience life in a full measure. If we only understood that and could remember it when we're going through it, right? Then, number three, he reminds them that they were already clean. So, this is an important thing here. Uh, positionally we are in Christ we have been justified by the precious blood of Christ we are forgiven of our sins but experientially we are being sanctified we're being set apart we're being separated from this world the love of the world and the love of things that are dangerous and hurtful to us that's part of God's cleaning process you are clean through the word how, Psalm 119, how shall a man, a young man, cleanse his way? By taking heed 
to God's word. That's why we preach the word. That's why I'm a broken record. Well, we don't have records anymore. I'm a repeating digital sound. <laughs> Read your Bibles, right? <laughs> Spend time with Jesus. It has such a powerful cleansing effect upon my heart, my attitude, my outlook. is just completely changed when I get into the Word and allow it to have its work in my life. And I believe this is really how we avoid religiosity. And we avoid hypocrisy. These guys had fallen into the hypocritical trap. They were, we don't have time to get to it this morning. Um, but this next few verses here, this hypocritical trap uh, that they were setting for Jesus using flattery, telling the truth about who Jesus was and is. He's a true person. He's without respect of persons. And what you teach is true. So, But they're saying it in such a way to butter him up, if you will. They're setting him up. And of course he sees... Do you mind if I finish this? Okay. I, I really apologize. I really try to do stick to the time. You know, a lot can be learned uh, by asking questions. Uh, there were two uh, students in college, just, just so you, some of you guys are still there, just this is for you, especially for you, right? <laughs> so two uh, physics students were wanted to go to a party in a town that were... 50 miles away and even though they had a major test coming the following day the only way they, they could go to the party is if they stayed uh, overnight and returned the next day and if they did that they'd miss the test and so they got to thinking well you know what we'll just tell the professor uh, that we had a flat tire and he can't punish us for having a flat tire and so they agreed they had a wonderful time, I'm sure. They returned. They told the professor that they had a flat tire and asked if they could make, take a makeup test. And the professor agreed. So the next day, they took their seats to do the makeup test. And he handed out, the professor hands out a sheet of paper. It had only had two questions on it, one on each side of the paper. Question one is worth... 10% said the professor. Question two is worth 90%. So take your time, answer the questions fully and completely, and this final test will make up 50% of your grade. Yeah. <laughs> Both students read the first questions. Who came up with the theory of relativity? Oh, yeah. Albert Einstein, yeah. They wrote it. That's an easy one, they thought, as they flipped to the back side of the sheet. Question two. Which tire was flat? You see, you always get caught when you're not telling the truth. <laughs> so, just a little advice for you guys thinking about skipping on on your final... <laughs> but it's amazing, you know, as we read this here, uh, the brilliance of Christ, and I'll read it quickly, 
verse 13, they sent him to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when he had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but each teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, and I will, that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, well, Caesar's. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The brilliance of Christ. You're never going to catch God. Here's how the hypocrites work. They try to limit his options. This or that Jesus. And that's what the devil does. He, see, this is sometimes what causes us to be disobedient and not trust the Lord. We think it's either or, or it's either this or that. It is not as clear as we'd like it to be. But God is not bound. God is never hemmed in by our options. This is what we can, this is the takeaway. We do owe a debt to God for sure. We have a responsibility to our culture. There's no question. We're not to do one and leave the other undone. We're responsible for them both. I want to leave you with two important words. And this will help us to abide. If you were doing any kind of paying attention, you realize that there was an over... Well, not really an overuse, but you might consider it an overuse. Ten times in those ten verses of John 15, Jesus uses the word abide. You think he's trying to like maybe communicate something to you and to me about what it means to abide, to stay attached, be part of, do not be separated from. You can define the word. <clears throat> but the two important words here, I think, will help us abide. And that is the word for and the word from. So many of us are working for affirmation. We're, we've dedicated our lives to God that we might get something from Him. Understanding that we're not working for God. We're not working for His acceptance. But we are working from acceptance. It's already been given to us. Well, if I just would be more obedient, then God would bless me. You see, that's, that's working your way into a place where you feel God can bless you. So you're, you're working on a, a performance-based relationship, and that's not what God wants for you or me. Where we are to work from what God has provided for us in the person of Christ. This is critical in our understanding. This is why it's so important to, to think about why we are doing what we are doing and how we're going about it. Well, if I do this, if I would just do this, God would bless me. I'd like to find out where that's actually written because I'm yet to read that in the scriptures. I've been reading them for quite a while too and I, I just haven't found that yet. But what I have found is that grace is truly unmerited favor. 
It's already been provided through the finished work of Christ on the cross. I mean, how much more does God have to do to demonstrate that what he has done for us is sufficient? Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross to take the nails and said, I love you this much. Need he stretch his hands out further? I think not. We simply need to abide. This pressure and trial, this way of bringing us sons and glory and daughters to glory is a process that God is fully equipped to carry out in our lives if we let him. He'll do it. The idea of abiding gives us the power to obey, to love, to carry out his will. Because abiding means we are not the source, but it, it is him working through us to remove the guilt and also the power of sin over our life. That's what abiding does. It removes the guilt, self-effort, and the power of sin that can rule our lives. You have one choice, two choices here. You can abide or you can wither, according to what we read there. You don't want to wither. You don't want to shrivel up and get blown away. You know, actually this word carries the idea of the inability to grow. You wonder why your experience in God isn't all that it it, what you want it to be or it can be is because you're not and I'm not abiding as I ought to. John, First John talks about it. one of those things being the love of the world. When our value system is identical to the world, we're not going to have the same spiritual growth that we need. We will, it'll be absent from us. It's like we're paralyzed when the love of the world creeps in. And so, work from this week. Work from what God has provided. Labor hard to enter into the rest that he's provided for us in the person of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. And these are, this is strong medicine for our fallen nature, Lord. It's an exhortation to bring our old man to the cross and to reckon it dead and deed unto sin and alive to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us, Lord. We know the joy. We experience the joy when we worship, Lord. We experience the joy when we obey you. But we can't do it in our flesh and we know it. So we ask, Lord, that you would put your spirit upon us once again. Fill us to overflowing with your love, with your grace, with your goodness, Lord. Help us to walk worthy, Lord, of being your children. And Father, we do ask that your word, as we read it each and every day, would come alive to us, Lord. It would, it would be just a richness to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?